that. If you have a Bible this morning, we're going to look at Matthew 13. We're going to read verses 31 and 33 to get us started today. And then we're going to read a few more verses later on in the chapter. But first, we'll begin with verse 31 through 33. Jesus, in the midst of telling many parables, he tells these two. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened, as in it became much greater than that initial handful of leaven, just like the tree was much larger than that initial tiny little mustard seed. You know, most of you know, I, I just turned 30 a few weeks ago, so I'm just, I'm basically a dinosaur now. Um, <laughs> would love, that would be really cool to be down. Of course, I'd be, be dead. And I don't know where I'd be in eternity. So, um, but yeah, that was talking about age, not height or stature, but unless little guys. Um, but I, I've been doing a lot of reflecting, a lot of thinking on my life since it's just passing away so quickly. Um, in all seriousness, I've been doing a lot of reflecting, a lot of thinking. Uh, you know, I, they call my generation the millennials uh, for a lot of bad reasons, probably. Uh, y'all probably have a lot of bad, they blame us for a lot of things. Now they're blaming the younger kids for doing stuff. But uh, um, hey, we'll take our blame. I'll take responsibility for whatever I've done to contribute to the downfall of society. I'm trying to help build it back one Sunday at a time. Um, but, uh, you know, we grew up uh, in the shadow of the new millennium, which is, you know, obviously the, the reference there. Um, you know, our formative years were in the window of, you know, time of the 2000s. Um, you know, every generation can look back and uh, think about all that changed from your childhood to the beginning of your adult life on into your adult life and, and so forth. Uh, but one thing that I've been thinking about when it comes to technology and how our society and our lives have been impacted by it, you know, I grew up in this age, this riding this wave of technology just advancing year after year after year. Uh, and all that had been in the works and wasn't even possible on a small scale for decades suddenly became malleable and implemented in every aspect of life. Uh, into the 90s and, and especially into the 2000s. And, and, and in my time at reflecting and thinking over the past few weeks, it's dawned on me that I got to see the, see the beginning of so much that we've pretty much accepted and come to rely on um, in life. I, I got to see things come together and become part of our lives that we don't think about living without now. You know, and, and a lot of it hinges on computers and, and the internet. And, and we all can think about, uh, most of us here, some of the younger ones can't, we can think about life uh, before everything was ran by a computer. I mean, everything is ran by a computer now, isn't it? Um, we are ran by computers, aren't we? You know, right? instead of the big thing in our desk or in our office, we carry these in our pockets. Uh, we carry these with us all the time. Um, you know, I was born in an era, you know, inescapably was molded by uh, this. And, and I just kind of accept it. And, and I know for some of you, it's probably jarring and, and difficult to kind of uh, to have adapted to that life you know for so long the world got by just fine without technology and without the internet and computers and things and maybe you've had a hard time adjusting to that or you kind of you know scream you know like the old man yelling at the cloud you know sometimes I'm like that and I'm like you know thinking why does it have to be this way but alas here we are uh, if, if the internet didn't already dominate society with what COVID has done to our world uh, many many more people um, are dependent 
on the internet for so many things. And, and this isn't a sermon on technology or the internet, thank the Lord. Uh, for, for me, though, something I've been thinking about is how often I find myself telling my nieces and my nephews um, about things that they have never known life without that I got to kind of see get started. Uh, and, and I know what you're thinking. Justin, you know, we, we all, have, you know, got to see get things get started as we, you know, grew up and everything. It's not just you. And, and I know I'm just trying to cope with the fact that I'm getting old and I'm starting to be able to see things like that. So I'm just trying to use this to, to get through it. Uh, I, I love hearing from many of you, regardless of your age, generation. I, I love hearing from my family members um, about what it's like to get to witness the first something. Maybe you remember the first something, whether it's technology, whether it was just some sort of innovation. You witnessed the first of something, the beginning of something. And I'm sure um, some of you, your parents, your grandparents maybe, um, they got to witness some of the big, big things from the early 1900s, the early 20th century, um, you know, the, the, the beginning of automobiles, cars, um, t- televisions. And, and you know, we can't imagine a world without that. And we see where all that is gone. Um, and then some of you, you got to witness the first TV dinners. So TVs, TV dinners, that's not funny. I don't know why I told that joke, but Eric was telling me before church about living through the 80s and getting the first microwavable TV dinner, so I thought I should share that with y'all. Um, but, uh, you know, some, some of us get to see big things. Some of us get to see small things, you know. Um, but uh, if we could go back through history and marvel at what it must have been like to see something new come to be, uh, something new come together. I-, I wonder, I wonder if we would have the foresight to be able to notice or to put our finger on something and say, that's going to change the world. Now, maybe you had the eye for that. Maybe you remember something starting and thinking, hey, that's going to be big. It's going to blow up to be everything to everybody. Uh, I-, I don't know about you, but it-, it would be cool to go back through time and say, for better or for worse, this is going to change the world, or this is going to really be a bust, and nobody's going to remember anything about it. Uh, you know, there are things that have come into our world that you can put an X on and say there was before that, and there was after that. There was before this thing existed, and there's after this thing existed. They, they kind of set tempo and markers in time, and Obviously, the printing press changed the world. Wired electricity changed the world. Uh, media storage changed the world. Phones, computers, the internet changed the world. You know, in my lifetime, um, I've seen things like, you know, that are just household names, Google, Amazon, YouTube, uh, social media, uh, smartphones, all that. Seen that come and change the world. Uh, most of these things come from humble beginnings. We've all seen that picture of, you know, the Amazon founder, Jeff Bezos, sitting at a desk with some books stacked up on it, right, with Amazon written with a marker on a board, right? And, you know, Lord knows what it has come to today. Most of the beginning, most of these things began very humbly, very, very small, with a, out a lot of hype around them. Um, rarely does anybody announce from the beginning, hey, this is going to change the world. Uh, I remember being uh, 16, watching the iPhone get revealed. And, you know, Steve Jobs obviously had already done a lot with Apple and with computers and iPod. I, Steve Jobs stood on stage that day and said, hey, this is going to change the world. Everybody's going to be different from the day this thing comes out. And, of course, it did change the world. It changed everything in terms of how the access we have to the Internet and, and so forth. Um, but rarely do people ever do what Steve Jobs did. Rarely do people ever have the ability to do what Steve Jobs did, to stand on stage, hold a device up that nobody's ever seen before and say, this is going to revolutionize everything. Everything. 
And most people are a little shy from doing so because you don't want to get egg on your face if you're wrong, of course. Uh, while this has become a little more trendy to say in today's world, people like to pretend, you know, like to be big and bold and make predictions like that about what they're doing or what they're bringing to the world. Every politician claims themselves to be the next, you know, savior of the world, it seems. Um, but, uh, you know, rarely do people actually do this. And, and actually, and if you go back through history, um, very few people ever announced themselves or the things they were bringing to the world as being these big revolutionary world-changing things. Uh, maybe the first thing you think about when it comes to the ancient world, um, as far as things that changed the world, things that stuck around for a while, is religion. And of course, religions are super, super old. Uh, if you trace back every major movement from the Middle East to Asia, the, the big religions that are still around today, um, they really only got big after their founder was long, long gone. It usually took, and it always, almost, always only took, always took generations and generations of followers building super cultic movements, and only hundreds of years after uh, would anybody see the results of what they would then go back and put in the mouth of the founders and say, hey, they said this, look, it actually happened. Um, but there's one movement that stands out as unique and different that we have on record from the very beginning that its founder said, this is going to change everything. And of course, that movement is Christianity. Now, of course, I'm saying that. I'm a pastor. This is a church. You're Christians. We're believers. But come on, I want to make you think about just how bold and audacious Jesus was to say the things that he said. Is on record of saying the things that he said. From the very beginning, he made claims that only delusional people of his day would make. He said things that people would roll their eyes to and laugh out loud at. Maybe even more crazy is that his followers heard, they wrote down, and they published all that he said within years of his death before a lot of it could even possibly have been proven true. Unlike any other religious leader or founder, Jesus did not conquer. He did not uh, claim a lot of wealth. He did not take over a lot of land. He didn't do anything spectacular as far as what most religious leaders or leaders of great fame do. But Jesus said some things that in his generation, people thought this is just hyperbolic. It cannot possibly be true. 1,990 years ago, Jesus made this prediction that we opened up with. He made this prediction that the movement he was starting, though it was very small and literally nobody but a handful of men were even paying attention to, Jesus said, just you wait. This movement is going to grow so big, it's going to be the biggest of its kind and be noticed over and against any other and all else. We can only imagine how people heard these things and received these things. Maybe they bought in with a whole cloth, but most of them thought it was nonsense. Most just were there for the food and the miracles. Surely nobody actually believed him. Well, a few did. A few of his closest followers were so convinced and so inspired by Jesus that they took to writing his whole story down. But they didn't wait decades before they could put the stories out. They didn't wait 40, 50, 100 years to make sure the movement grew before they would actually put these things out into the public. They published them less than 15 years after his death, when being called a Christian would be a guarantee way to die because of the persecution. They put their names on the line, they put their lives on the line, and many gave their lives up just like he did. Matthew, of course, would go the farthest and would make the bold, would, would record the most bold of all Jesus' claims and collect them in a document we call the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. 
Beyond this parable, Matthew has Jesus on record saying things like this. He stood on a dusty hillside in front of a pagan temple and said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, if you're listening, will not prevail against it. And his 11 followers or 12 followers looked at him and thought, Jesus, what is a church? What's a movement? What's a gathering that hell can't stop? Listen, Jesus, we love you and we think you're great, but nobody's going to remember us. Nobody's going to think back to this day and this time. No one's going to even hear you say this. Jesus, of course, would go on to die but raise again. And on his resurrection, after his resurrection, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who would say that? All authority in heaven, on earth, has been given to me. And he told his disciples, he told his 11 men that were there with him on the Mount of Olives, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And they're hearing this and thinking, Jesus, nobody's going to believe us in our own backyard, much less around the world. Jesus, I know, you know, we don't understand what just happened on the cross and what just happened in the resurrection. We believe you're alive. We understand that something big has just happened, but we don't really understand how the world's going to pay attention to it. Jesus, all authority, you have it, and, and you want us to go and tell the world, but here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and it's undeniable the impact that Jesus has had on the whole world. Yes, he built his church, and his name has been preached, and his glory has been spread to the ends of the earth. And there are believers on every continent, of every tribe, in every tongue. But when Matthew wrote these down, and many in the first century read them, could they ever have imagined what would come from under their own nose? Think about it. Empires have come and gone. Dynasties have risen and fallen. Kings have conquered and been conquered. Many have obtained fame and fortune and lost it. And all of these years later, Jesus is worshipped around the world as Lord, Savior, Master, Messiah, and most of all, King of Kings. And yes, those who bear his name are still persecuted in some places, but we, think about us in our day, in our age, in our country, we are the product and benefactors of a nation having been founded on his message that everyone has value and deserves dignity. We live in a country that was founded on the basis of religious freedom and continues to fan the gospel flame more than any other nation to the rest of the world. Because what drives our churches are the very words of Jesus, as Matthew told us in chapter 24, where he said, this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. We believe we are building towards something that is going to be spectacular. We preach the gospel relentlessly because we know that as great as our nation is, it's not forever. We anticipate a greater one to come. We need to hear this reminder now more than ever because this year has challenged our habits of worship, our gathering as a church. Yes, yet we hear the words of Jesus from all these years ago. We take heart knowing that this movement, this movement that started in the shadow of a bloody Roman cross in a graveyard with none expecting a miracle, his resurrection has led to these and sparked billions of resurrections across history around the world with sinners being saved by Almighty God, finding a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And all of our stories are similar, as if we just copied each other, but we know that they're deeply personal. To this day, if I didn't know the whole story and didn't know how the Spirit of God works, I would find myself like the religious leaders in Acts, like many throughout history that did not believe 
but they could not deny that Jesus was at work. In our world today, throughout history, his presence is definite, his continual work is irrefutable. Even if I was an unbeliever, I would have to acknowledge that there's something undeniable at the person of Jesus, the work he somehow miraculously continues to do all these years later, just by taking in the purely secular historical briefing of what church history and Christianity is all about. Many, many people have taken refuge under the shade and been impacted for the good by the work of his church. Whether they sought after it or not, this seed has grown to a tree whose branches and leaves have spread so far and so wide, and many, many, many have been impacted by its influence, whether they realize it or not. Things we take for granted, things that we see as normal, yet there is still room to grow in. Christianity spearheaded and has always been pushing for. Equality across gender and race, dignity and value of children, abolition of slavery, promoting a sacrificial, selfless love for one another. Kindness and generosity being greater than might and greed. All of these things are deeply Christian. And without the church, they would not be taken as self-evident and would not be guarantees in any society. People that have never entered a church or joined a church thought about worshiping Jesus have all come in contact with and been impacted by him and his truth. But the church isn't just some single monolith that people might pass by or catch a glimpse of. As we've heard, Jesus established his church to be much more intentional and intently missional. It has not existed in a corner or spread its influence by accident, not at all. Now, you probably know the more often used metaphor of the church is told by Jesus is not one about a tree, but one that involves boats and nets and fish. If you look down at verse 47, Jesus caps off this, sermon, this, this big chapter of parables by telling this this parable that casts a wide vision for the church and casts a very deep purpose for it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet or just a net that was cast into the sea and garnered, gathered some of every kind, every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth, separate the wicked from the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Jesus would go on to say, if you understood all these things, and they said to him, yes, Lord. I don't know if they really understood just what he was casting, just what kind of vision he was casting to them that day. Now, remember how Jesus started his movement, how he began his ministry? In Matthew 4, he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So this analogy of a net in the sea and being fishermen is one that really was core to his movement. The next verse says that he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So this parable tells the story of the church casting its net to all the earth. The net is a picture of the church being cast forth by the fishermen, by the disciples of Christ. We are a part of that story. In this, he tells us how everyone will be touched by the church, whether brush up against it or attend it weekly. Many who attend church week after week admittedly aren't Jesus followers, but they're here for the social scene, for the family reasons, or they're just curious. Maybe you hear people talk about how the church is full of people who aren't saved, and that's true. Jesus predicted it would be that way and seems to be okay with it because it's inevitable the super big far reach of the church would reach people more than we could ever imagine. 
And that's been fulfilled in our own lifetime. We have seen the church go far and wide and reach deeper and wider. And think about how much the church has been ingrained in our culture. Isn't it true that in our country, the church is just a part of society or it has been for so long? Think about that parable of the tree, the parable of the net. Consider how deep and wide the church's net has been cast and to what great effect. Even if you're a skeptic, even if you're not a believer, you consider just how deep and wide and just how impactful the church has been. It's undeniable. And when Jesus said every kind in verse 47, he really meant it. Think about just in our generation, consider all the kinds that have been brought into the net. There are over 30,000 denominations in our world. 30,000. Over 250 claim to be Baptists. They're all kind of Baptists. Don't Google that. You'll get overwhelmed and feel bad. But there are over 30,000 kinds, and you say, well, they're not all the right. Listen, that's not the point. Over 30,000 people, 30,000 kinds of denominations full of 2 billion plus people. So when Jesus said every kind, he literally meant every kind. Can you imagine, could you go back in time and show the statistics to the, to the ancients and say, hey, one day there's going to be 30,000 different kinds of churches. They would look at you and say, I don't even know if we're ever going to reach 30,000 Christians, much less 250 Christians. Why can't y'all get along? Why are there 250 of you? Well, that's a long, long story. I bring this up for really just one reason. Often our spiritual lives are so reliant and dependent on feelings, on hype, on circumstances, It's so easy to get dull and down. It's so easy to lose the awe and the wonder. It's so easy to lose the wow factor concerning what we are witnessing, what we are a part of. You know what's at risk when we go a single day without this wow factor? Everything. And I know you say, well, of course you say that, Justin. Listen, my responsibility as a pastor as a teacher of God's word, above and above, above everything else is to continue to make this wow factor front and center of your lives. That when you open God's word, it would be such a big deal to you that you would be in awe and wonder that we are a part of something that Jesus predicted 2,000 years ago. This tree that grew up to influence the whole world, this net that was cast far and wide. Every day we are living out a fulfillment to a two thousand year old prophecy that we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves that goes beyond two thousand years even that this is God's plan since the beginning of time to establish a kingdom to establish his reign over the earth to dwell with people to create a world where we can experience heaven's bliss and the earth's best of course sin messed that up and sin continues to mess with it yet a relationship with Jesus and following Jesus is our open door to the reign, to the kingdom of God. See, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, yes, he's pointing to a definite time and place in the future, but he's talking more about what he's been doing the last 2,000 years in history. What he continues to do and will do until this age is done is to establish his presence and dominion through the church. And you probably noticed Jesus says over and over again in these parables, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. They don't really deal with heaven, though. Most of his parables about the kingdom are referencing life here and now. In Luke 17, you'll remember Jesus said this, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he said to them, 
The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In referencing to our hearts, our communities, in between us all, all of these kingdom of God parables emphasize how we live here on earth, welcoming and living under the reign of God as a way of building towards life in heaven. The key is, we opt into God's reign now because there is coming a day when there will be no other reality We submit to his kingdom now because one day his is all there will be. See, think about the story of Noah. The ark carried his family into the new world safely through the wrath and terror of the flood that was wrecking havoc on the world around them. That is, in a sense, what the church is for us in our world right now. We've joined the church. We've stepped out of the chaos and the unknown of the world around us, knowing that one day all the chaos will consume and ultimately destroy the earth and its kingdoms. Yet for those of us in the ark, those of us in the church, those of us in Christ, we will transition to a new world, to a new kingdom, to the eternal life. That's the story of John's revelation. It's not about dates and hours, charts and predictions. It's telling us, church, we're in the ark of safety. And yes, the world's on fire. And more of a reason, that's more of a reason to double down and seek the Lord's reign through it all because one day he will be above and over all and outlast it all. This parable makes it clear that one day, that one day is coming. Verse 48 says, when the net was full, as in there's going to be a completion of this experiment called the church. Verse 48 says, when the net was full, and verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age, as in there is an end approaching to this age. But until then, The reign of God coexists with the kingdoms of man, as Daniel told us in chapter 4 of his book. We'll look at that later. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. But one day, the kingdoms of man will pass away. The pieces in place will give rise to a literal, eternal kingdom of God. And what we get to taste and see as members of his church is preparing us for this and give us perspective like none other. What makes these previous statements of Jesus so important, what makes the fulfillment we've already witnessed and experienced and been a part of so important is that we should not be surprised at what comes next. We should be ready and anticipating what comes next. And what comes next is what verse 49 says, the end of the age. Where the wicked are separated from the just, the unrighteous from the righteous, the evil from the saved. Now, I want to mention this to you. Anytime you see the word wicked or evil in the, in the New Testament, yes, it refers to awful, awful, sinful things, things that are done to hurt people, things that are done to uh, blaspheme God, but there's another meaning to evil. It can mean things of no value, things that are worthless to God. And to ourselves. Of course, that encompasses all things that are sinful, all things that are bad, all things that are wicked. I think Jesus' words here pertain to things that to things as much as it does people. 
See, everyone that wasn't saved by him will perish. That's not, that, that, that's clear in this text, but there's more. Everything that wasn't done for him or in honor of him will waste away. We make such a big deal about those who are lost, how they will perish, and that's true. But I think there's more to this that we Christians ought to pay attention to. The scriptures teach from front to back that certain lifestyles will not inherit the kingdom of God. Certain decisions have no eternal value. And I think this speaks to those who are not believers, of course, but I think it also speaks to those that are Christians. Christians, we sure do sin a lot to have been saved from it, don't we? We sure do carry a lot of sinful burdens and weights on our backs that we claim to have been delivered from, don't we? Which is why I think this speaks to the choices and lifestyles of believers as much as it does non-believers, those things that are not eternally valued, those things that have no eternal good. Because Christian, a lot of us now aren't living like we're under the reign of God, much less like we're headed toward a kingdom where he alone is king. What are our motives? What are our goals? In light of this ark that we have been so graciously given entrance to, how do we perceive this kingdom versus God's? You say, I don't think about that stuff. Maybe we should, maybe you should. Do you think that we as believers can behave in such a way that it is in contrast to our future home standards? Do you think that we'll even be at home in heaven if we're so detached from its influences on earth? Are we even building towards this heavenly home? Or is what we are involved in and what we are building towards, is what we're building with, are those things just going to waste away? Like this parable says. The Apostle Paul wrote on this very subject. And I just want you to hear these verses. I don't claim to have the perfectly clear understanding of them, but I don't think we can ignore them. Paul refers to the foundation in every Christian's life, that no one can be a Christian unless they are saved by Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith in him. But he says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, as in we all build on that foundation of our faith, we build with some substances that are more lasting, more precious, more valuable, or with things that aren't going to last. And he says there, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Do you hear that? Gold, silver, precious stones. What's fire going to do to that? It's going to purify them. It's going to melt away the bad and it's going to leave something more precious. But what's fire going to do to wood, hay, and stubble? It's going to consume it. If the work that, has any, that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, not saying that there's some sort of losing of salvation, but clearly there's some sort of loss in eternity. And he never explains it. And Jesus would say these kind of things, and he never explained what it meant. And I, don't, I think he did that on purpose. Because I think he wants to so intrigue us and so get our attention and make us ask ourselves this question. How are we building on the foundation of Christ? With things that are eternally valuable or things that have no value to God at all? You know, we talked last week about what it means to be a Christian, how Jesus is not just some ticket or some ribbon. He's a treasure that we seek after every day, that we do things that honor him to make decisions that magnify him and increase his boundaries of his kingdom to widen the light, to spread his fame and his dominion. That when Paul talks about building on that foundation, when Jesus talks about things that are going to last forever and be remembered in eternity, 
He speaks of how we should redeem every moment for his glory in all that we do with all that we have, that we should take the name of Jesus with us and amplify his name with all that we do and all that we possess. That we should honor him with every thought, word, and deed, leverage every dollar, every decision, every day for his glory. And this may sound extreme to some, but if we're headed toward a kingdom of God, can it even be too extreme? Listen, the only, if the only thing that says we're a Christian is an hour we take a week or a decision we made a long time ago, what does that say about our faith? You know, on my office wall, I have staring at me these certificates that were framed and plaques that I got in college. And some might consider those accolades, but I take those as accountability. I don't rest on those degrees or those certificates. I'm compelled by them because I've know I've got a race to run and my lane and my top speed is of a certain potential that I'm accountable for. That like Hebrews 12 tells us, since we are surrounded by these great cloud of witnesses, we must lay aside every way and every sin and run with endurance the race set before us. Come on, we all have God's word that, that casts a vision of opportunity over us with pathways and practical truths that we can follow and apply. We've read the parables this morning and talked about this movement. We stand in the shadow of what we've witnessed and what we've been a part of. When we consider the moment we're a part of, the magnitude of this movement, how present and upfront should our faith be? How driven and focused should we be by and for our faith? Shouldn't our faith influence everything that we do, every decision that we make? And I know, I know this may be abstract, but we spend plenty of time in God's Word talking about black and white, what we should do, can do, and are to do. And if this convicts someone, if this convicts you, open God's Word every day and simply trust and obey, and He will show you and guide you and use you as you need it and as you have been placed in this world. My message today, as broad as it may be, is simply this. May we not take for granted nor waste this current age after we have been a part of something that Jesus said would be so great and so glorious consider your place in this age and your purpose for his kingdom before we go I gotta ask you has anybody ever heard the story of C.T. Studd anybody well that's good this won't be a wasted few minutes for you C.T. Studd I gotta say he is the picture of a stud if we dressed like that, gentlemen, we would be far more respected. C.G. Studd lived from 1860 to 1931. Um, I don't know if he really looks cool or not. It's a cool bow tie. It's a different kind. They don't, they, we don't use that anymore. C.G. Studd was a famous cricket player. We're going back, way back, in England in the 1870s, 1880s. Uh, he was headed to Cambridge to play and would no doubt set records and gain fame for generations to come. Yet the winds of the kingdom of heaven began blowing over the kingdom that C.T. was building in the 1870s. C.T. heard the gospel for the first time in 1878, and he was floored with these questions. What are you living for? Have you considered what will happen at the end of this life, at the end of this age? He couldn't answer those questions. And upon hearing about Jesus, he received Christ as his Lord and Savior. Yet, he went about his life, pursuing his athletic career and fame, but he could not get away from this greater question. What am I doing that is of eternal value? At Cambridge one afternoon, he encountered an atheist, and this is really interesting. 
in the 1800s, especially the late 1800s, um, England had been swept over by a revival. And a lot of the non-believers, the atheists that had really been drumming the, the, the idea of reason and with political and science, scientific agendas, they were out on the mission field to put an end to the Christian revival. So think about this. On Cambridge, a Christian school, there were atheists if you will, missionaries. They were handing out tracts trying to convince would-be believers or believers to walk away from their faith. C.T. was handed a tract one day, and it basically was dismantling Christianity on this one thing. How hypocritical it was for Christians to say they really believed what they claimed, that they believed that there was a kingdom coming, that they believed that Jesus was important, yet they did not spend their time actually sharing this gospel. If it was true, wouldn't they be out spreading this gospel like it meant something and like it was actually coming, the kingdom of God? Instead, they just claim they're better than everybody else and they live their own selfish private lives like everybody else and they claim they're going to heaven when they die. C.T. read this pamphlet over and over again and he was so convicted he and six other athletes began meeting and praying for God to use them for his kingdom. They were called the Cambridge Seven. They began serving their community and sharing the gospel. They heard that most of Asia had been unreached for Jesus. These were just schoolboys in England. And because they heard that the, the gospel had not reached China yet, they uprooted their lives in 1885 and they went on a mission to China without knowing what they were getting themselves into. They lived for years assimilating into the nation of China, building a platform to reach the Chinese. And then, at age 25, C.T. got word from home that his father had passed and that he inherited a large amount of money. He and his wife Priscilla sat down that evening in China to talk about what they were going to do with all this money. And he began to talk about going back home and building and having all that they'd ever dreamed of. And she said, honey, we're where we need to be. We can't go back. So all that money was divested and given to charities and to support the mission of not just him, but of hundreds more. CT would go back to plant, would go on to plant churches in India and Africa. He felt called to spend the last few decades of his life serving in the Congo. He worked diligently to create mission organizations committed to reaching the, the, the whole continent of Africa, but he struggled to get any funding because nobody took it that serious. With miraculous provision, he founded his own group called the Heart of Africa, or as it's known to today's world, the World Evangelization for Christ, which has over 1,800 ministers and partners and is present and active in over 80 countries, doing more good for the kingdom of God than we could ever or he could ever have imagined. Founded on this quote that C.T. is credited with, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Isn't that remarkable? Now, you probably have never heard that story, but I bet you've heard something that C.T. wrote. He, he penned a poem later in life that so powerfully captures his heart. And I laid one of these on your, one of your pews. Your pew, there should be one of these in the center. If you didn't get one, I can give you one afterwards. But this is a poem that I know, if you've never heard of him, I'm sure you've heard the last two lines of each stanza, at least once before. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
I love how he ends it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. When I was 16, I reluctantly attended a Bible club, well, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And if y'all know me, I'm no athlete. And I especially wasn't an athlete when I was 16. I couldn't walk. But I went because I was invited by the athletic director that really was fond of me. When I was 16, um, a pastor from Gainesville Baptist Church, he's moved on now, um, he came and spoke at the FCA meeting. And there was a trivia thing at the end, and somehow I won this book. It's called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Uh, This book, um, I remember uh, reading the cover and I rolled my eyes and thinking, you know what, I know what that book's about. I already know I don't want to read it. Well, somehow the pastor got my number. He called me about four months later and asked me if I read the book. And I lied because I hadn't. And I thought, who are you calling me? Ask me if I read your book. No, yeah, I read the book. You know, it was great. I'm inspired. God bless you. And, you know, I wasn't being a smart aleck about it. I just didn't really want to have anything to do with what I thought this book was going to tell me because I knew what it was going to say. And I didn't want to hear it. But something began to burn inside of me. I thought it was just conviction because I lied. So I thought, you know what, I should at least skim through the book because he might see me again one day and ask me what my favorite part was, you know. So I skimmed through the book, and I still have a bookmark on verse 12, on page 12, where C.T. Studd's story is told. And where I read that refrain for the very first time, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I read that. And I couldn't stop reading it. And then I read the book. Then I read the Bible. And I could not get this question off my mind. What would it mean to me? What would it mean to not waste my life? All these years later, I haven't made the best use of every hour, day, season, dollar, decision, or day. But in my quest and following after Jesus, I have brushed up against a passion that burns so powerfully and unrivaled by anything else. A passion that says I desire to see God glorified in my life and every thought, word, and deed. I desire to live under the reign of God and experience the fullness of Jesus every day. And let me tell you, Jesus never disappoints. And when we live for him, there is a joy, there is a brilliance, there is a satisfaction that cannot be described, but it cannot be contested either. God is calling every one of you, and he wants best for you. God's reign always equals our gain, not in material ways, but in eternal, personal ways. And I've learned I only experience the fullness of God and his goodness when I am wholly surrendered to Jesus. When we surrender and dedicate every decision, dollar, day, thought, word, and deed, we tap into a passion that consumes us and elevates our entire being. One day this age will end. And what will be said of us? Once more, Hebrews 12, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the uh, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That's how his story ended. And you and I can know that if we pursue him, there is a joy we receive in the process that will not be rivaled by anything else.
at the end of this age, when one page turns to another, what will be said of us? Knowing what you know, having been blessed like you have been blessed, having seen what you have seen, what does not wasting your life look like as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a Christian? What does it look like? That's a question we ought to ask ourselves every day. And we ought to pursue Jesus with our whole heart because only in him will we find the answer to that question. Only in him will we find the fulfillment and the purpose that we so desperately want. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. I'm thankful for this reminder from you about what is the most important question we could ever ask ourselves. Father, in this life, there are so many choices. There are so many options for us. But God, at the end of the day, there's only one road for us to take. There's only one answer. And the only way we can have an eternal impact and make decisions and build a life that has eternal value is to seek you and honor you and glorify you with all and in all, every thought, word, and deed. Lord, somebody here today has a great calling over their lives. Their place is a mom, their place is a dad, their place is a husband, their place is a wife, their place is an employee, their place is an employer, their place is a church member of Risen Church. Somebody today has been dealing with and is dealing with an incredible amount of desire and would-be passion for something spectacular. And maybe today they want to make, they want to give you the answer you've been looking for, you've been waiting on, that you only accept. The answer that says to you, I am going to live every one of my days with a passion and a purpose inspired by and dedicated to Jesus Christ. To be all that I can and do all that I can for him and his kingdom. Because I don't want to get to the end of this age when it's all done and say, I have nothing to show. I have done nothing of eternal value. Father, try our hearts as we ask this question, what does it look like to not waste my life? God, thank you for the incredible opportunity. As we sing about your beautiful and awesome name, may you draw us in to Jesus today. We ask this in his name, amen.